We'll give you praise and we'll give you glory for everything that will be done in this lesson, in this message, in this teaching on tonight. And we, we thank you in advance. It's in Jesus' name we pray, everyone that say, Amen. Let's make this confession of our faith. Say, Father, I've come to receive revelation, wisdom, and understanding from your holy word. And I fully expect the Holy Spirit to bear witness with my spirit concerning revelation of the word and how to apply it in my life on a daily basis. Everyone to say amen. Praise the Lord. Second Peter chapter number one. Second Peter chapter number one. We've been talking for the last little while from the subject kingdom concepts. Kingdom concepts. And we kind of been making our way. Hold on just a sec. Making our way through the concepts that are deposited in this notion of the kingdom. And as I indicated on Sunday, because of how we're going about this, there is no way possible that I could start at the top and make our way back down to where we are every single week, every single Thursday. And so I want to admonish once again, I'm able to see the pastor in me, those that are not with us to please catch up. Amen. Catch up with us in regards to some of the other things that we've gone over because this is a teaching ministry and one of the things that you need to understand that's uniquely different about a teaching ministry is that every message builds on the next. Every message builds on the next. I don't hoop holler in the sense of give you a cute sermon or something like that that I think is just one good one for the times. But there is a divine assignment, I believe, on this church, and I believe that the people that are connected to this church are assigned to go to a distinct place that God wants for his glory and his manifestation of certain things to take place in this particular region. If you believe that, say amen. amen. All right. That being said, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse uh, chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 1. And verses 1 through 15 have been our foundation in regards to this area of the kingdom concept where we're talking about the formula for effective, fruitful Christian living. The formula for effective Christian living. And I'm going to quickly read through this. It says, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 1 says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, verse number two, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. Verse four, whereby we are given are given unto us exceedingly great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust verse 5 and besides this giving all diligence he says add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance and to temperance patience and to patience godliness and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity, or another translation of that word charity is love. 
He says, verse number eight, which is bringing us to the reason why we're going through some of these things. He says, for if these things, he says, be in you and abound. These areas that he just mentioned from verses number five through seven, he says, if these things be in you and are growing, in you and are developing, in you and are in manifestation, in you and, and exploding to some degree, because this has become a life to you. He says, they make you, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In order for us not to be barren, that means to be unfertile. Infertility is something that is not just a problem uh, in the natural world, but unfortunately it's a problem in the body of Christ. Why are we not having babies? Why are we not being productive? He says, because these things are not in you and they're not abounding. So he says, if these things are in you and they're abounding, he says, you will neither be barren. That means I will be fertile. And he says, and nor unfruitful. I will have fruitfulness in my life, in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So I won't just be a Christian in name only, but I will be a fruitful and I will be a fertile Christian. Verse number nine, he says, and he that lack of these things is blind and cannot see afar off and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. If you are lacking in these areas that he indicated to us, these ingredients or of this particular formula, he says, then you are short-sighted because you've forgotten that you've been born again because you're still acting like the world. He says, verse number 10, wherefore, the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Make sure you give attention in sense to these areas to make sure that your election, that you're being called into the kingdom for such a time as this is sure. Make sure that you make sure that you give attention to these areas so that you in fact can live this fruitful and fertile life that God has in fact called us to live. He says, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Ye shall never fall. And every time I read that, I'm, I'm just amazed at the fact that again, this revelation is coming through the, the life, if you will, the, the revelation that came through Peter, a man that understood what it's like to have a massive public fall. Lord, I be with you. I die for you, Jesus. Oh, and this is what a lot of Christians sound like. Oh, God, I will anything. You have my life, except when I'm under pressure except when I have an issue, except when I'm not sure, God, if I really believe that you know what you're doing. He says, if you do these things, and essentially he says, if these things be in you and are abound, in you and are growing, he says, ye shall never fall. So again, it kind of puts the onus back on us as believers. If I am falling, then I need to examine this list. If I'm having struggles or an issue, I need to go back and examine this list. Because if he says, I have the capacity to have that ye shall never fall, then there must be something in these areas of scripture that I need to get hold of so that I don't have failures and falls in my life. So I put this together and I believe this is um, essentially what 
kind of capsulizes these passages of scripture. And I call this the kingdom formula. The kingdom formula because we understand that the kingdom is the people of God and it's also a system of righteousness. We understand to get into the kingdom, it requires that you receive uh, what Jesus did on the cross and his salvation by grace through faith. By grace through faith. Yeah, I'll say that. I've been thinking about this uh, a little bit on today. You know, when you think about it in terms of grace, grace doesn't really require that you do anything. One of the things that I was noticing about maybe uh, a conference that was taking place last week is, and it emphasizes an area of grace, is that grace, for the most part, it seems like every speaker was emphasizing just being. Just being. You don't have to actually do anything except be. And there is a level of truth apart with that. That yes, the grace of God has everything to do with what Jesus did. And that's all it is. What Jesus appropriated by the cross. How Jesus made salvation available for us. What Jesus did is such a thing that yes, it's an amazing grace. But just understanding grace will not get you saved. He says, by grace, he is saved through faith. The through faith is the part that you got to do something. The faith part or through faith, this is the reason why Jesus, by the Bible says rather, that without faith, it's impossible to please God. It does not say without grace. Grace is good. It's important. It's how we understand what Jesus did appropriate for us by his blood. But you will never receive what he appropriated by his blood, the grace of God, unless you receive it by faith. And so I believe that the most important thing that you should learn in the kingdom is how to live and walk by faith, which is one of the reasons why we emphasize it so heavily at this church. Because grace is like the atmosphere. You can live here on this planet called earth and there is an atmosphere filled with air that was available for you free of charge. But if you don't have the lungs to take that air in and out, then you will not benefit from the air that is available for you. Benefiting from the air is essentially you taking hold of it. Well, God says in the kingdom of God, grace is what's made everything available for us. But you receive each of these items, salvation, prosperity, healing, and health. He who received these areas through and by faith. Why am I spending time saying that? Because the first element that Peter indicates to us essentially is that the first area we have to have in this proper seat is this area of faith. He says, start with faith. Start with faith because everything in the kingdom rises and falls on this area of faith. Now, I want you to notice something. I, I just, I, again, I told you we were going to flow with what we got tonight. One of the things you'll notice that's not on this list is grace. You, you, don't, you don't say start and add to your grace. None of that. Your grace is not on the list at all in these passages of scripture. He begins the scriptures by saying here at the beginning, he says in verse number two, grace and peace be multiplied unto you. But he says through knowledge of God, grace and peace multiply what Jesus did for you. He says, my peace I give to you. 
not as the world get, let not your heart be troubled. But he says right here in verse number two, he says that's multiplied in your life, but it can multiply through knowledge. Knowledge of God becomes important. Walking in these areas becomes important for us to understand so that we can appropriate what grace has made available for us. And the first area we, of course, understand is this area of justification. But the second area that happens in our life is this area of sanctification. And I dare say, how does sanctification look like? What does it look like when God calls us to sanctification? It comes about first in this area of faith. Start with faith. Let's see where my slides are. And then he goes on just for announcement purposes, we've said before, that list once again, he says, start with faith. Then he says, add virtue. Then he indicates, add knowledge. Then he says, add self-control. The King James Version of the Bible uses the word temperance. And then it says, add steadfastness. Steadfastness. King James used the word patience. It says, add, next thing, godliness. Godliness. Add, it indicates to us, brotherly affection. Brotherly affection. And then it says, add love or add charity. He says, if these areas be in you and abound, ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ. What knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? What grace has made available for you. If you want to abound, if you want to, in fact, be fruitful, if you want to be fertile in the grace of God, then it requires that you do something. It requires that you put these practices in your life. Putting these practices in your life is presenting your life unto God, holy and holy as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him. And he says that's your reasonable act of worship, as one translation says. So start with faith. I want us to look at this. We're going to do a little bit, like I said, of a review tonight. A little bit of a review tonight, kind of putting all the parts together before we fully move into this area of knowledge to see how far we get. Faith. Faith is essentially walking with God. Walking with God. Walking with God. Let me see if I can locate this with my notes. Because like I told you, my notes are a little bit different than my slides uh, because of my little issue that we had today. Let me see if I can get there. All right. That's what you say. <laughs> Amen. All right. Yes, indeed. Okay. They're on this page. All right. All right. So. As we said again, faith is walking with God. Now our perception of when we talk about how to live and walk by faith is we're taking the chance that God keeps his word. He said start with faith. And the reason why he says start with faith is because faith intrinsically is relational. Noah walked with God. Abraham walked with God. Developing confidence that God keeps his word. Walking with God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. I love the fact that it says we walk by faith. It don't say we run. We jog, we hustle, hustle up by faith. <laughs> it says we walk by faith and not by sight. 
So Peter says, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the first area that we need to add to our, our life to not be infertile, to add to our life so that we are fruitful, start with faith. So he says, start with the walk with God. And to make this very practical, he says, start with a relationship with God. That God, yet yeah, I'm taking the chance that this God that I don't know yet, that I'm getting knowledge of, that I'm getting to understand, this God, I'm going to take a chance that he keeps his word. This is what Abraham looks like when God taps him on the shoulder and says, I'm going to bless you if you do what I say to do, if you go where I tell you to go. Abraham doesn't have any experience that would say following God is profitable. But he says, yeah, God, I'll take a chance. And when God deals with us, that's exactly how he deals with us. He deals with us little by little saying, come this way. I live on the inside. Do this. And as you take those chances that God keeps his word, I am beginning to walk by faith. I begin to take him at his word where he says, I am the God that healeth thee. I begin to say, God, you said in your word that you don't change, you don't lie. I'm beginning to see something. So I'm beginning to take the chance that God keeps his word. And as we said before, as I begin to take the chance that God keeps his word, the first area that he begins to deal with me with is this area of, you know, I love you. I love you more than your parents love you. I love you more than your husband or your wife loves you. I love you more than your kids love you. Don't you understand how much I love you? That establishment of faith in the love of God has to be in its proper seat first before any of the rest of the list is able to be accomplished. Faith in the fact in your new identity. He says, you are my son. You are my daughter. I know your daddy wasn't there, but I ain't him. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will take care of every area of your life. I am your God. Will you take me at my word where your new identity is concerned? Or will you continue to draw your identity from what the world says? The world says you are a big woman. You're a big man. And you are valued based on whether or not we think you are attractive. The world says it's based on how much money is in your account. The world says it's based on any level of all of the other superficial things. God says, I love you. I love you. Your identity and your value comes from the fact that I'm God and I say I love you first. But you got to believe that. The next area is, of course, to have faith in God's ability, that God's limit. Listen, I'm, I might have limits, but anything that God calls me to, he's able to supply the need. He's limitless in his supply. Faith in the fact that God keeps his promises. He already says yes. And then, of course, we said faith in God's agenda, his methods, his directions, and his methods. And then we begin to see that the next thing that Peter says by way of the spirit is that the next thing after you have this area of faith that God keeps his word. After I begin to develop in the fact that, yeah, I'm going to take a chance on believing that God will do what he said he will do. He says, I want you to add this area of virtue. Add this area of virtue. And so we've looked at this area of virtue for the last couple of weeks. And even though I do declare to you that we've not even cracked the surface on virtue, we've looked at beginning to connect the lines between what virtue actually is. After faith, 
Virtue is where God's beginning to call me to a level of compliance and he does it from the inside out. And so why is virtue important in our relationship with God? Number one is because virtue is a protection of the soul, the mind, the will, and the emotions. Virtue is the protection of the soul, the mind, the will, and the emotions. When God calls us to virtue, it's so that you can sleep at night. <laughs> he calls you to virtue so that you don't have a conflicted soul. You trying to say hallelujah, but you got all these other things. I'm double-minded. Double-mindedness is what dilutes your faith so that you can't receive from God. So the devil always wants you to be double-minded. He wants to pull you away from virtue. Why? Because of the fact he knows that if you walk in faith, you'll receive the promises of God. So virtue, walking in virtue is a protection of the soul. Walking in virtue is a protection of your witness, the ability for God to actually use you. That's one of the reasons why God pulls preachers is because they don't walk in virtue. It's not that God's changed his mind where the call is concerned because he said the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. But you have to have stewardship of any call that God gives you. Whether or not people receive your gift has more to do with your ability to walk in the stewardship of the gift than it does God's call. A lot of great singers, a lot of great singers. Just here recently, one got in trouble because she was not operating in stewardship of the gift. She could sing up something, but she was acting carnal on that stage. And yeah, my wife says it's foolish as well. And she let her foolish mouth not singing get her in trouble instead of using her gift to be a blessing to people. You are the steward of your gift. Touch your neighbor and say, you are the steward of your gift. So virtue protects your witness. Virtue protects your witness. I said tonight is a hard review. A lot of these stuff we've already kind of gone through. Virtue is the protection against satanic attacks. Virtue is a protection against satanic attacks. And now I'll give you one scripture here. First Peter five, verse eight through nine says, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walk of about seeking whom he may devour, indicating to us he can't devour everybody. It also indicates to us that he's not the lion himself. He's indicating to us once again, Peter wrote this by inspiration of the spirit. What does he really want us to understand here? He says, be sober because the devil is watching you. Sometimes we, 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 we get, yes, and I heard preachers say, well, see, he's not a lion. No, he's not. A, oh, the lion of the tribe of Judah is Jesus. And they get in and all, and that's wonderful. Great. Praise the Lord. Absolutely true. You're missing the point. The point here, he says, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion. Well, what does a roaring lion do? He's watched his prey so that he pounces on his prey at the appropriate time. The point is, a lion, if you study out lions, is they spend time watching for weaknesses. So that the time that you hear the roar, he's already determined you are weak enough to attack. So he says, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, seeking, walk of about seeking whom he may devour. He's watching the secret areas of your life to see when is the appropriate time to attack you. Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to attack you when you're in the spirit. No, 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 no. I'm going to attack you when you're when you out and you, now you're questioning God. 
I'm not going to deal with you when you are full throttle. I rebuke you, devil, in the name of Jesus. No, I'm going to deal with you when you didn't get that job, didn't get that promotion, when you didn't get that thing, when it didn't happen the way you quite thought it should happen, and you're in a position where you're saying, God, what in the world, what's going on? He says, I'm looking for those areas, sounds like I'm looking for those areas where your faith seems weak, whom he may devour. And then he says, verse number uh, nine, he says, whom resist him steadfast, resist steadfast in the faith. So he says, I want you to resist him and be steadfast, be patient in your faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. In other words, you ain't going through nothing that nobody else didn't go through. So you don't have the right to say you can't overcome it. Any issue that you're facing, any obstacle that you're facing, anything that's happening in your life, somebody somewhere overcame it. Number four, virtue is an expression of your faith, trusting in God's methods over your emotions, trusting in God's methods over your emotions. So we talked about this on Sunday. I had a review again, hard review night, for we're getting ready to go forward. We talked about the cycle, the cycle. Um, we said on Sunday that virtue produces first and foremost generosity. Generosity is a willingness to give support. It's a willingness to give money, help, uh, kindness, especially more than usual or expected. You are not a generous person if you are giving what is expected, what is usual. You are a generous person when you give above that, when it costs you something. You know, I'll, you know, one of the reasons why we really haven't dealt with race issue here in America is because we don't want to deal with the cost. We don't want to deal with, yeah, it's going to cost you feeling uncomfortable for a little while to be able to reconcile this situation. It's going to cost you looking at the real past and not the one you like. It's going to cost you in regards to you sitting beside somebody that doesn't look like you, doesn't sound like you, doesn't share your politics and saying that's still my brother because we're covered by the same blood. It's going to cost you something. It's going, it's going to cost you being generous in an unusual and unexpected way for you to operate in genuine virtue. Jesus was walking through the crowd. He wasn't looking to do anything for the woman with the issue of blood, but the Bible says that virtue came from out of him and she was healed. How many of us God can't use yet because that virtue isn't in place and the power can't be in place? Virtue, one of the things it produces is generosity. I have a generous heart, I'm a generous person, I'm gonna have a generous spirit. The next thing it produces is selflessness, a lack of preoccupation with oneself, interests, advancements, or desires. Selflessness, if I genuinely walk in virtue, it produces selflessness. It ain't just about me. Once again, Jesus walking in the crowd and he's fulfilling the will of God. He's headed to Jairus' house and power comes from the inside of him to touch somebody else's life because Everything that Jesus was doing was about somebody else and not about his own thing. And attentiveness to do or to those others, it is to be unselfish. And then we've also said that what happens is virtue ultimately produces good works. Virtue ultimately produces good works. And so we looked at 
putting the connective tissue together with 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse number 7. He says, every man as he has purpose in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly, not out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And he says, God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you have, that ye always having all sufficiency for all things may abound. And he says to what? To every good work. Generosity connected to the good work that God wants to produce in your life. Your selflessness connected to the good work that God wants to produce in your life. And of course, in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk therein. Jesus indicates to us, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify God. And so we looked at the fact that the word glorify or to give glory means to give honor, to magnify is to make renown. Good works make God renowned in your community, in your family, in your sphere of influence. Good works give God honor. They magnify your heavenly father. So we looked at this and we determined that there has to be a cycle. Now I saw this late Saturday night and so I missed some slides. I saw that, as you pointed out, on Sunday. But I, I, I was writing on one side so hard I wasn't getting it on the other side. What is this cycle where virtue is concerned? A virtuous, or we can even call it the virtuous cycle that the Holy Spirit wants us to be engaged with. How it looks is virtue produces first spending time with God. I spend the time with God in prayer. I spend the time with God in the word. I spend the time with God genuinely from a pure heart. And as that happens, as I spend time with my heavenly father, I begin to gain his heart. That's one of the reasons why he says, love your enemies, do good to those that persecute you. Because you can't pray for people and get God's heart and keep hate at the same time. I cannot get God's heart and keep bitterness in at the same time. When I get God's heart because I'm spending time with him, what is that producing? Virtue. So when I'm spending time with God, it produces God's heart. And as the production of God's heart, I get God's heart over my own. God's love inside produces virtue. It produces virtue. It produces the morals. It produces the valor. It produces the potency. And as that virtue grows, it produces generosity. I become a generous person because one, I got God's heart and God is a giver. The only reason why we have the ability to get born again is because he loved us first. He gave his only begotten son. So God's a giver. I spend my time with God. Virtue begins to grow. And the manifestation of this virtue is generosity. The manifestation of this generosity then allows God to fund the good works. Because as I start sowing, every man, as according as he has purpose in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly, not of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, he says, and God is able to uh, make all grace abound to you, that ye having all things and all sufficiency and all things may abound to every good work. So what happens is the heart, the virtuous heart that I have produces generosity. As this generosity is produced and I'm led by the spirit, then I give and I sow. And God says, when you give, then the law of reciprocity is unlocked in your life and I can now fund the works that you have because you're interested in funding the works as I direct for other people. And so what begins to happen is, is there's a flow between your assignment and their assignment. 
because everybody is obedient to what God has indicated and directed. Generosity allows God to fund the good works. And this virtue or this good works gives glory to God. So once again, what is this cycle that the Holy Spirit wants us in? I'm spending the time with God. As I spend the time with God, I get God's heart. And the more I get God's heart, it produces internally virtue. As it produces virtue, I become a generous person. And we understand, of course, generosity is just not talking strictly about money, but I'm generous in my time, generous in the things that I do. Generous means I am a giving person. Unselfish, generosity, unselfish, selfless. As that begins to happen, then it produces or because of my purpose in my heart, cheerful giving, then it produces my giving to things. Then God says, I can fund the works of your hands because you are giving to the assignments that I have. I'm interested in because you have my heart. You're giving to those assignments, giving of yourself to those assignments is the good works that give glory to God. If you understand that, say amen. All right, so virtue, if we were to boil it down as I close this area out, thankfully, hopefully, hopefully, I said that Sunday. <laughs> virtue is essentially composed of two areas, surrender and sacrifice. Surrender and sacrifice. Surrender and sacrifice. Now, because I am who I am, I don't like to just give a good churchy word and not define it because I can say surrender I'm sorry surrender and submission I do apologize of course you're going to surrender and have submission there's going to be some sacrifice surrender and submission yes that's why I have to have my notes <laughs> surrender and submission okay surrender is or surrendering to God's way the word surrender Let's look at this. Now, I had this on one slide, but I'm going to have to read this. <clears throat> Surrender is to yield to the power, control, or possession of another upon compulsion or demand. To yield to the power, the control, and the possession of another. If I'm really a surrendered kingdom citizen, that means I'm yielding to the power of God. I'm yielding to the king's commands and not my own. Second definition is to give up completely or agree or forego especially favor of another. To give up completely or agree, it means to forego especially favor of another. I to surrender, which means now I could have it this way, but I forego the favor that could be for me and give it to you and to say, yeah, we're going to do what you want to do. I'm giving up control. It literally means I am walking in agreement. Surrender means to give oneself up into the power of another. One of the reasons why so many people don't walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, this area, like we said, of virtue is because of the fact they ain't gave up control yet. Have you really? One of the reasons why we have some folks right now that are, are waiting to be baptized in the Holy Ghost is because you have to get out of your head to receive what the Holy Ghost has for you. You got to give up oneself the power of oneself. Number four, to give up oneself to something such as an influence. Does the Holy Spirit have genuine influence in my life? The governor, can he dictate my steps? Surrendering means to surrender to God's ways. 
But submitting means also this area, which is submitting to God's process. The word submitting literally means to yield, again, to the governance or authority. To submit. It's a word that we don't like today. Submit. To come under the mission of. To yield to the governance and authority. To defer. Number two is to defer to or consent. Watch the word. To abide by the opinions or authority of another. Let me say that again. To defer to or consent to abide by the opinion and the authority of the other of another. Submitting means, yeah, I got an opinion, but what God says is what I'm going to agree with. Now, yeah, yeah, I know everybody doing it this way, but the Lord said this way, and I'm going to stick with what he says over what the world says. I submit my opinion. So this is one of the reasons why I don't like, I feel like for me. Well, ain't nobody ask you what you feel like for you. Particularly when we talk about church. <laughs> what does the word say? Because we came here to get God's opinions and interject them into our lives. Submitting to his ways, his process. Yes, that's the reason why we don't have outlines. Because I couldn't get past the conviction of that stealing. <laughs> I couldn't. I tried. I was sitting there and said, well, I won't get these outlines out. It'll be all right. I'm the only one in the office anyway. <laughs> but I couldn't get past it. Because little, my God says we don't steal. That's not what we do. And people steal. They steal all the time. They steal time. They steal paper. They steal the minor things. And they say, we're doing it in the name of the Lord. Well, I thought we have rules and, and laws. I thought God is God of order. It's an amazing thing that people love to talk about order when it favors them. But they don't like to talk about order when it doesn't. I find so many people like to go to Romans chapter 13 when it's something that you agree with, that we need to respect the governing authority. But what the governing authority tells you, put on a mask or something like that. Well, no, I got my rights. <laughs> if it's something you agree with, yes, now Romans 13. But if it's something you don't agree with, no, I got my rights, liberty. <laughs> we got a problem here. We got to find God's heart over what culture is telling us. We got to find God's heart over even sometimes what politically motivated preachers and not biblically motivated preachers are saying. Let me keep going. So in essence, what we are essentially getting at is to submit and to surrender is to be like Jesus. Let's look at this really quick and we're going to close here. I'm not going to be long at all in this review <clears throat> to be like Jesus. John chapter 5 and verse 19 of the New Living says, and Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son does. Jesus speaking about a healing. He says, let me tell you this. Let me, let me explain how this is working. The son can do nothing of himself. He says, essentially, I didn't come with my own agenda. Let's look at another witness of this. John chapter 6 and verse number 38 says, For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. This is Jesus, the Son of God. And he says, my agenda is one of surrender and submission. My agenda, everything that you see me operating in is the reflection of my father and not my own thing. Let's look at another example here. 
Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 through 7. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to a church that got haughty. They were full of pride. And he's saying essentially, I'm going to do some correction here. And he says, let's let Jesus be our example. He says, out of the New Living Translation, you must have the same attitude that Jesus had. What attitude did he have? I ain't come to do my own thing. He says, though he was, verse 6, he was God. He did not think equality with God. Oh, I'm missing something there. Equality with God as something to cling to. In other words, because he was God in the flesh, he did not use that as a tool to say, hey, look at who I am. Look at, look at my business. He didn't use that to push himself up. He says, verse number seven, instead, he gave up his divine privilege. He took the humble position of a slave. The King James uses the word servant and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. In other words, he said, let this mind be, which was also in Christ Jesus. He had every right to go around and tell everybody, I am the son of God. I am, don't, I am, I'm all of that. But he said, no, everything I do is reflected of my father. Everything I do is an expression of surrender. Everything I do is a, is a reflection of submission to the will of God. And Paul says, by inspiration of the Spirit, let this mind be in you. Be like Jesus. Well, I'm a person, I want to know, well, how am I supposed to do that? What does that really look like, practically? Let's look over here, James chapter 4, and this is where we're going to close. James chapter 4 and verse number 7, out of the New Living Translation. James chapter 4 and verse number 7. I submit to you, one of the ways he does this is by this operation of virtue. The operation of virtue, when you boil it down, looks like surrender and submission so that you can operate in power. The reason why we see Jesus operate in power is because of the root issue of surrender and submission. You want to see power in your life? Surrender and submission has to be key. You want to know why things are not happening yet or why you're waiting on this? Because God said, I got to get you surrendered and submitted. So it's more about me and my will and less about you. James chapter four and verse number seven says, I'm going to read this really quick and then we'll go. I'm going to capsulize it here at the end. He says, so humble yourself before God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Verse number eight, come close to God. And God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Verse number eight. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Verse 10, humble yourself there uh, before, I'm sorry, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you, he will, he will lift you up in honor. What do we see out of these passages of scripture for the sake of time? The first thing he says is, so humble yourself before God. So essentially he's indicating to us, how do I be more like Jesus? Humble yourself before God. Humble yourself. He did not say God humble you. Surrender, submission. Surrender, submission. I humble myself. I humble myself. 
Yeah, the attitude, I humble myself. God keeps showing you you, but you say, but yeah, but Lord, that humble yourself before God. Then he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So resist the devil and don't welcome him through carnality. If the devil is not fleeing from you, you gotta ask the question, have you been resisting? Or saying, come on in here. And how do I invite the devil? By utilizing his tools. I've said that multiple times in this church. How do I use his tools? I am acting carnal. I talk like the world, I act like the world, I speak like the world, you cuss me, I cuss you, you cut me, I cut you. And so therefore I don't resist the devil, I welcome the devil. He says, humble yourself, get out of pride. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So number three, God guarantees the devil's exit with the completion of the first two. If you do these two things, the devil is not the issue that you are having in your life. If I'm humbling myself under the mighty hand of God, I'm submitting to God, I'm humbling myself or surrendering to God, I'm resisting the devil and not walking in him, the devil's not the issue. Number four, he says, draw close to God. Maybe this is the issue. Draw close to God. God is never going to force himself on you. Verse eight says, come close to God and God will come close to you. So if God's not close to you, if you don't sense the presence of God, you got to ask the question, have I put myself in the position for God to draw close to me? He says, he goes on, he talks about purifying your heart. What does that mean? Have a pure heart through a pure life. That is a life of sanctification. One of the reasons why people don't have the connection with God is because God ain't going to bless your mess. You got this life living this one way and then you say holy hallelujah on Sunday. We got a problem. We have a disloyal heart, which is the next thing. He says, have a determination or be determined or have a determined loyalty to God and not the world. Have a repentant heart. I cannot split my affections and then wonder why am the power not flowing because I am of two minds. I'm of two hearts and God cannot flow through two minded people, double minded folks. So he says, come close to me. He says, I want you to have a loyalty to me over the world, over how the world operates. Have a repentant heart. What does that mean? See, one of the issues that we're having with the grace message, and I'm not picking on it, please understand that, is we are forgetting that God's still holy. Grace has everything to do with what Jesus did to get you into the kingdom of God. But in the kingdom of God, yet it does take surrender and submission. Surrender and submission is called holiness. Now, don't get me wrong, the issue that we've had historically in the past, and I can use certain uh, denominations, man, they preach, they preach the hell out of folks, you know, holiness of hell. But the issue was they were preaching it for justification and not sanctification. And so therefore, when you misunderstand these two concepts, you're trying to be sanctified to get into the kingdom. And God says, no, that's by grace. But now once you're in the kingdom, yeah, then you got to get some might right. Even in the grace of God. Let me give you a, a practical example. The day I remember my wife giving birth to my first daughter and my second daughter. The day they were born, I loved them instantly. They were my daughters. I held them in my arms and I loved them. I love the way they smile. I love the way they look. And I was in awe of the fact that I'm a father. My love wasn't the issue. 
But now as they got older, around one, two, three, and four, and they start cutting up, I wouldn't be a good dad if I just let them do whatever they want to do. Now me correcting them and calling them to a level of compliance doesn't negate the grace or the sonship, the daughtership. But what it does display is the fact you got to get some act right because if you're going to be someone that's usable, you got to do right. And that's what a good father does. This is what our Heavenly Father does through sanctification. I need you to get some act right. And I need you to stop backing into this area. Oh, but we live under the grace of God. Yes, you live under the grace of God and you should not continue in sin. You might want to read Romans again. Verse number, I'm sorry, number seven. No genuine humility is the key to kingdom promotion. He says, verse number 10, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. Know this, that genuine humility, the first area he begins with, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Know that genuine humility is the key to kingdom promotion. This is the reason why a lot of people don't operate in promotion in the kingdom. It's because they won't humble themselves. And when God continues to say, I need you to humble yourself, I need you to humble yourself, I need you to humble yourself, you might have even had, I've seen with ministry gifts, they've gone up and they've been successful. But if they've missed the correctiveness of the Holy Spirit, even what they've built will fall because they are operating in pride. And what will happen is God says, I can no longer advance what you're doing because you're not reflecting my heart, you're reflecting your own agenda. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. The key to virtue is found within surrender and submission. Surrender and submission. Submission and surrender. Let's pray. Father, in the authority of the name of Jesus, we bless you for this opportunity to have gotten into your word this evening. Lord, we just choose to indeed humble ourselves before you. Areas of where we've been lifted up in pride, Lord, we repent. Areas, God, where you told us we need to change, we repent. We thank you, Lord, that the key, in fact, to promotion is that we humble ourselves to be more reflective of you and not of our agenda, to be more reflective of you and not our own thing. That Jesus is our example. And so, Lord, as we look to you as our example, we thank you, Lord, that you are placing us in position for promotion. We give you praise and we give you glory for everything that you're beginning to build and cultivate on the inside of us. And we thank you, Father, that in fact, that we won't be infertile, but that we will be fertile and fruitful believers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the